Okay, welcome to another edition of Cultural Class Podcast, uh, the podcast where we get to interact with people from different backgrounds, get to learn about other cultures and what's going on in places all over the world. Uh, my name is Nosa Yari, and today I have yet another guest. Um, welcome to the podcast, XRA. Hi, thank you so much for inviting me on. Yeah, most definitely, most definitely. I mean, we're in very unique uh-huh. times right now. Uh, uh, the oh, yeah. city of Denver, where I currently live, just uh, initiated like a, a curfew uh, for this weekend. I think it extends to like Monday or so. Obviously, there's been a lot of protests about mm. the George Floyd thing uh, all over the world. I mean, we have protests in Germany and I think even in, in the UK, in Peckham, yeah, so like got, a few we, videos. One, one today in London and we've also got some next week, yeah. Yeah, it's just unfortunate that, you know, we keep seeing these things uh, repeat themselves, you know, year in, year out, all the way from even before, even before the earlier riots, like in the early 90s, uh, for the same reason, police brutality, but, you know, Mm -hmm. such a dysfunctional system. Yeah, I mean, it makes me really, really, really sad and... Um, I think it is going to change people's opinions. We know that the reason I think um, it's got the reaction it has is because it happens every single day. And it's just one, you know, it's the tip of, tip of the iceberg of years and years and years of constant racism um, and just constant, you know, bad treatment of anyone from Africa or any from Caribbean, like in the UK, the Windrush are treated horrifically. I'll talk about that. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Windrush nurses, retired Windrush nurses were asked to basically come back for the pandemic after they had been absolutely and utterly insulted. Yeah. Sorry, did you say Windrush nurses? Yeah. So um, basically, they're people uh, they're from the Caribbean, West Indies. They came to UK and helped build the country. Oh. And the UK basically sent like quite a lot of uh, people back, didn't give us uh, many people citizenship. Mm. It's horrendous. And we had a lot, we had, I think, between 10,000 to 16,000 uh, West Indies uh, people. And they came here and they, they uh, also fought in World War II. They don't even have a monument. The government can't even be bothered. Boris Johnson, uh, to even pay £500,000 to put a monument so that all Caribbean soldiers are recognised, or even not just soldiers, every Caribbean person that, um, you know, contributed to the World War II effort. Now, what makes me angry? When it's Veterans Day, you know, or mm. when it's anything to do with that, I, will wear, I wear a black copy, okay? It's not to disrespect any white lives or any non-black lives. That's not the point. But it's the fact that it's absolutely and utterly ignored, as well as, you know, African lives and Kenyans and so much stuff I can go on now. But the George Floyd thing, the reason why is it's just, it's a reminder of every other single form of racism. And I wonder, has anything really changed from when I grew up in Mississippi? Yeah, you know, it's really unfortunate. And, you know, we'll, we'll talk about um, probably, you know, pan-Africanism. We'll, we'll talk about that because I think it's high time we need to start building our own systems because um, oh, yeah. I don't think, you know, they thought about Black people or Africans or immigrants when they were building the system over here. But um, that's neither here nor there. Um, sorry, you know, we got a little bit um, sidetracked there because of, you know, current events and things are happening. 
Um, but let, let's talk a little bit about XRI. You know, I love your name, first things first. Like, why you yes, said your name? Your position. Yes. So I thought, like, hey, you know, that must be, you know, a name she coined. You know, that can't possibly be her first name or birth name. But well, apparently, that's your name, XRI. Like, what? Yeah, have you asked your name. parents, like, what were you guys <laughs> thinking when you guys named me XRI? Is there a story what? there? Yeah, well, the other name would have been Fatima if I was a female and Knife if I was a boy. K-N-E-I-F. Wait, wait. Which, if you were a boy, your name would have been what? Knife? Yeah, Knife. Like a blade. What? Why? Yeah, it's, be, it's like, can you imagine? That'd be quite a cool name. That would be a street name, wouldn't it? Uh, wait, wait. Wait, your name would be Knife and you would have been living in London. That would have yeah. been for, you probably, maybe might not have ended as well as we would have. Yeah, I know, I know. And I do, I do music teaching as well, so can you imagine being a teacher called Knife? <laughs> oh, my God. But let, let's get some context here. So your dad is Egyptian. Yes. Your, your so, mom is Swedish. and She's half Swedish and half English, I think. Yeah, um, yeah. So where did the name come from, your dad's side or your mom's side? I think they just got very, very confused. I think it's because I think it's got actually Greek origin. Um, mm. So it's just the same. It just comes from it, um, Sarah, Sarai, you know, Sarah. It's just still the same kind of thing. It's just a kind of deviation on it, I guess. Oh, that, that's pretty interesting because I spoke with um, Abadesi, who's uh, a young lady who also lives in London. I think I spoke to her like three or four weeks ago. And the Nigerian iteration of her name is Adebisi, or her dad kind of like, use an iteration like Abadesi instead. So I'm starting to sense maybe a lot of uh, men who live in London give their daughters some unique names or some iteration of traditional names in some sense. You're the second person. If I see it a third time, then I'll, I'll make up my mind. But yeah, it's a pretty cool name, though. Oh, thank you so much. Yeah, we, take a, we also take the father's name and grandfather's name as our middle name. So we end up having quite long names. <laughs> oh, really? In Egypt? Yeah, yeah. That's, that's pretty popular. In, uh, in I think in Ethiopia, that's also yeah. like the case also. Uh, yeah, but so but talk, to, talk to me about growing up. Like you were born in London. And when you were very little, like you ended up moving to Mississippi. Like that must have been quite an mm -hmm. experience. How old were you when you moved to Mississippi? I think I was about uh, two. And my earliest memories, I have a few memories. Uh, very few in uh, England, but most of my earliest memories were in Mississippi. So that's why it kind of influenced me and developed me so much because those foundation years, mm. you know, are really shape you, don't they? And then you've got the teenage years, which also can impact you, but your brain's developing. And those experiences uh, when you're that young do really impact you a lot. Uh, and what was the reason for your move? Like, because uh, you were still pretty young, did you know? And either of your parents got a job here in the U.S., or you know, was there something else that uh, you know prompted that move uh, from London to the U.S.? Uh, well, my mom was married to my father for eleven years, um, and then, but, but my mom got remarried, so I didn't meet my father till I was older until I was, you know, a little bit older. Um, so that's why we kind of moved out there. And there is a backstory also to do with it, but I just have to be careful about confidentiality in terms of how much I can say. Um, but yeah, so uh, we moved out there and yeah, I had a bow and arrow and I had a gun. And you had a bow and arrow and a gun. How old were you when you got oh, your first gun? Yeah, I, I would say about four. 
Um, and we used to go uh, Wait, fishing. did you say four? Yeah, I've got a picture. Yeah, I've got a picture to show. Um, and we used to go fishing. Hunting is just, having a gun is not a big deal out there because it's so intertwined with, because where, where I was living was the south of Mississippi as well. So it's a place near to Pascagoula, and it's a place called Moss Point. And Moss it's Point. like, yeah, it's right in the south of Mississippi. So it's very different to like North Mississippi. Um, and so, you know, culture there it is, you know, I used to see alligators and go all the time and go to, you know, swamps and play around in the woods and there'd be black poisonous snakes. I hardly wore shoes unless I really, really had to. You know, I spent most of my young years barefoot. Um, and it was a very kind of, I was, I was left to my own devices, really, because my mum was so busy working, earning money and everything and so I kind of had a lot of freedom and so and lots of land to do but yeah we'd wake up first thing in the morning and we'll go fishing um and go out with the nets we'd do that um go hunting you know and if we killed an animal obviously we make sure it's uh obviously not pregnant and you skin it and everything like that and mm. I and it kind of um what kind of animals do you guys usually hunt well, people do would kill a lot of deer. They would. I, I don't yeah. know. You can't really do that here because they're protected by the queen. So. Do, you, do you still know how to skin a deer? <laughs> I think I'd probably be a bit rusty now. I'd probably be a bit rusty. But it was second nature there. And, you know, and, and like squ squirrels as well would be used a lot um, because what you do is you train your dogs. So you always have dogs. And then you train your uh uh, your dogs to be able to go on the, the hunt with you and I, I can talk about it a bit later but I had a, a horrible horrible white neighbor that used to train his dogs uh, to, to basically uh, attack black people which is absolutely horrendous really well we can talk yeah. about that right now like what okay. like wait yes. so how big I, I would imagine like you know the lands or the houses in Mississippi had you know a lot of land so like yeah. a neighbor neighbor wasn't like was it like someone how close was his house to your house? Pretty it much. was quite close. Like there, there is a lot of land, but it was we had like a driveway, and then it kind of split up. Kind of the driveway split off. So basically, my mum, uh, when we moved there, um, my mum put me into a school where I was like the only like pale kid, and the principal said to my mum, "You know, you you shouldn't, you can't put your your child into this school. You know, all our teachers are black." Um, all the children are black, she's going to get bullied. Like, she's just going to get bullied. Um, and my mum just said, no, I, I want to put my daughter into this school. She didn't listen to the principal. Mm. And in the end, he had to say, okay, well, fair enough. Um, and the reason why I'm talking about this is because it links in with the neighbour, which I'm going to speak to you about. And um, so when I first went there, obviously, to begin with, he got... You'd have the whole, you know, cracker, honky kind of thing. But mm. that that only lasted like a, a few weeks. And then people clocked on, like, you know, uh, you know, just because she looks like the white people, miss if she isn't like them kind of thing. Um, and then they, they kind of then understood. So all my friends basically uh, were black, yeah? And I didn't really understand, I, I didn't really see any difference between us. I only became aware of our differences when society pointed that out to me, which I thought was really weird. Yeah, and that's always normally the case. Like students grow up pretty innocent and, you know, interact with each other pretty well. But, you know, due to influences like from family or society, they end up becoming something else. 
Yeah, exactly. I just, it just never even crossed my mind. And what we would do, we'd wake up every single morning. So I used to have breakfast there too, grits. I used to love grits. I still love grits and gumbo. Nice. Um, oh, love good gumbo. I oh, miss that so much. Do, you, do yeah. you find any gumbo in London? Oh, no. Honestly, <laughs> it's so bad. It's so, Got so it. bad. And no, not even any grits either. If I had the money, I honestly feel like I would just set up a little shop selling gumbo and grits for anyone here. So it's so, I miss it so much. And good cornbread, you know, that, oh, really. Nice. Really yeah, yeah. But um, so basically, we used to, before classes started, we had to watch Martin Luther um, King. Martin Luther King Jr. videos every single morning. And mm. we did that as a daily ritual. And that was something the teachers did and we all did every single day to feel empowered um, about the world outside of the school. Mm. Um, and it was something that just was such a special and important part of our school day. And at the beginning... You know, when I first joined the class, someone would turn their head over towards me. But then afterwards, it just wasn't an issue. Um, I, it, I really cried my eyes out very much when I found out some things um, about MLK. But, you know, none of us are, are, are perfect, and I prefer to focus on, the, on the, his amazing uh, positives. So, yeah, then I invited a, a friend uh, from uh, my school, and I wanted her to come to my house and play. And um, she was uh, on a bike. And then she, you know, she came up to the driveway and she kind of put the bike down and stuff. And um, basically, my neighbour started hurling um, insults, shouting. And you swearing. guys were kids. Yeah, he was. A, he was a racist. We had the KKK mm. nearby and everything. So. Oh wow. Uh, yeah, it's just that was the climate we were growing up in. Um, things have obviously changed and moved on, you know, but when I was a kid, this is, this is how it was. Um, and he then basically set his dogs, um, and ordered them to basically attack my friend. Um, and still to this day, I still feel guilty for this friend. Um, and I obviously was really scared. And fortunately I had a dog, uh, a German shepherd, so an Alsatian ex-police dog who was very well trained and we used to be really close and she stood in the way and protected because I, I obviously protected my friend. And so mm. my dog then went to protect me, you know, in turn protecting my friend from the dogs. Um, and my dog had to go to the vet and was very severely hurt. Um, it's, it's, it's quite painful talking about it now, actually. Um, and then that's when I was very aware that there, um, that was when I really questioned my skin and stupid adults. And I started to question the world around me. And I lived in this really, I lived in this world where all my friends were visibly African um, and darker than me. And then I lived outside, you know, with, with all these people who would interpret me um, as one of them when I when I didn't identify as that at all. Yeah. How long then, did you live? I mean, you that? talked about staying, you know, growing up your form formative years uh, all in Mississippi. How long did you end up staying there? Because I, I can't uh, imagine that, like, you know, you're, you're 
you know, you wanted to be in that kind of environment for like a long stretch of time or something. No, yeah. but that's negatives. There's also a lot of positives. So let me talk mm. to you about the positives. Okay. So for instance, um, back then churches were quite divided. We have black churches and you have white churches. Kind of um, still are. Kind of. Yeah, and, and more so. So black churches, they, it wasn't just about praising God or Jesus. And the school I went to was very, um, you know, very Christian. And so it would be like, make sure you do your homework and make Jesus proud and, and everything like this. It was actually almost, churches were almost political. It was about fighting the white system around. It was about being mm. empowered, about being black. It was about saying about not being defeated so that you would walk out of that church and be proud you're black, you know, and and you know, you would be uplifted. It was more than just worship of, uh, of God. Obviously, that was part of it, but there was so much intertwined about identity. Kind of like a platform days, for civil rights, just like MLK. Yeah, because you have to understand you're in a system that's dragging you down, especially in parts of America. I think it's much harder in America if you're poor than if you're in UK and poor. True. So there's a reason why um, the welfare system over here is more supportive than the one there for a start. And there's... The, there's lots of other um, elements as well. So I was really lucky. So I was invited to, because I had black friends who knew I was safe, it was a really rare thing. But I was invited to go to, to, go to church, to go to black churches. My mum went to a different one. My mum wasn't invited, only me. Um, and that's because, you know, they were my friends. Like that's, they saw, you know, my friends didn't see they, they you know, they just didn't see me any different. So when I went, used to go to these churches, there would be like no air conditioning, little shacks, you know, but it was just full of life, full of music, and you were mm -hmm. buzzing by the time you're out. And it's a very, if you're invited into that environment, I and I just instinctively knew this at a young age, you know, it's a real privilege um, because it's such a personal space where, you, you know, they don't, basically, you don't get white people going along to that space. Fact you know, because unless you know they're, I don't know, proper safe. Because <laughs> um, you have to be, you know, careful. So that that influenced me, and that was a positive. And the great thing about Mississippi, and this is regardless of, you know, uh, skin colour, um, they're very loving people, they're very, they're great at cooking, and they're very homemakers. And once you're in the family, they'll love you and treat you as one of their own as well. Um, it's just in terms of the race thing. Yeah, that's pretty hot. When I came back to England, what was really shocking is no one knew anything about black history, and that really shocked me. I couldn't get my head around that. In England? Remember, uh, that's not yeah. too surprising. <laughs> I, yeah, I know. That's not too surprising. Well, how, how old were you when you, like, you went, you went to Mississippi when you were, you know, uh, two? How, how old were you when you got back to London? So I got back to London, I think, when I was about 11, something like oh, that. Oh, wow. So you stayed yeah. there a while. And, and you, then, you didn't manage to develop a southern accent or anything? I had a real, I had a really heavy southern accent. I had a very heavy southern accent. My cousin has a very heavy accent. Um, and now when I, I, but later on in life, what happened was, like, you know, I'd have this drawer and go, gasoline. And I went into <laughs> a really, and they'd be like, no, it's petrol. And they ripped it out of me. And I guess I became very aware of my accent. And so I tried to consciously change it as well because I felt like I completely, you know, stood out. Um, so that that was part of it. But yeah, I used to have a real Southern act. And, you know, I think there's some things that the UK is totally different. Like it was just the, 
you know, I'd have my bow and arrow and, you know, I would just, it's okay to be able to use that. That's not, you, you can't really go out in London and do that, you know? You yeah, can't no. be going around in London with a gun. L- London is a more or less metropolitan city, so you, you can't obviously probably have guns on the streets. And I, I'm sure, like, the gun laws, I'm not, really, I'm not really familiar with the gun laws in the UK, but I think based on, you know, perception is probably um, a little, you know, more strict than here in the US. Oh probably. yeah, definitely. They're really strict on that. Uh, we only have clay pigeon shooting and the, but even police can't carry them unless they're kind of high level police, um, which I know that Americans are like, what? how do they manage to do that? But America's so different and that people make the mistake of comparing the two in the sense of when it yep. comes to gun laws. Yep. Sometimes you need to be able to carry a gun for your own, your own self-protection, especially protection. in and if you're driving in a car alone, the roads are much longer. It's a huge country, the USA. You know, mm-hmm. UK, I mean, England is tiny. The UK is tiny. Facts. You know, the Texas roads aren't alone that long. Is, you know. There's shops every single, you can walk to shops, you know, pretty much. Um, you, you just can't make that comparison. Um, well, so, let's, yeah. look, let's look at the bright side. You know, if we eventually, you know, go into like a zombie apocalypse or something, at least you have yeah. like, you have your bow and arrow skills, you know, like the walking death kind of thing. So. Yeah, exactly. And I've still got family out there. I've got family in Alabama. I've got family in Mississippi. Um, I've got family in Hawaii. Um, my American brother... In Hawaii? Brother, nice. Yeah, so my, my, yeah, my American brother is in the U.S. Marines. Um, he's high up. He's a like a colonel there. Um, and also, like, um, yes, yeah, so I've got mixture. And I've even got some friends in San Diego. But, yeah, those those are the kind of main places I've got family and stuff it's just really like it was very much kind of you had to protect yourself from Mississippi a little bit so I'll give you an example so there was a neighbor and he was a teenage boy and he had a metal baseball bat and I don't know I can't remember exactly what I did to annoy him but he got the metal oh that was it we were playing a game Mm. and I think I kind of um we're playing baseball and I think I won and he was a really bad loser so he got a metal baseball bat and basically hit me around the head with it. And oh my it just God. my um, eyebrow. I had like a big scar where a rock got stuck in there. So <laughs> I couldn't see or anything. There was just like blood everywhere. So I was rushed to like, then <laughs> my older sister got really scared. And was like, ah! And then they tried to get my mum. So I had to go to the hospital and they had to do the stitching without even giving me any like anesthetic or something. And they put you into like almost it's almost like a straight jacket they wrap you around in your arms and legs you can't wiggle wow <laughs> yeah Wait, why, why, why didn't you get any anesthetic though i don't know because they, they just did it really quickly i don't i have no idea but it was good in a way because they gave you like nice little uh coloring pads and stickers they would do that there you'd get little gifts if every time you went to the dentist they'd have like flavor gas at the dentist and stuff that they don't do that in the uk you don't get like bubble gum gas everyone is serious right well that's just i think that's capitalism speaking on the u.s side but you know also you got to when you say you got back to london and you discovered that um, no one had a sense of like black history what do you mean is it that the black people who were in london were oblivious to their history or uh, kind of like um, English people didn't acknowledge like black people. Well, what do you mean by that exactly? Um, I would say both. But when mm. I first moved back to England, it wasn't in London. It was a place that was um, an hour and 45 minutes away from London, um, a place called Norwich. So I, I would obviously travel back to London and I've been in London ages now. 
Um, but um, yeah, so I lived in a smaller city. It was a place called Norwich in Norfolk. Now, what I noticed is whenever I would talk about Martin Luther King Jr., um, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., they would, they would look at me like I was a bit of an alien. Well, you just brought up MLK casually in bars and Well, be honest, I've been growing up with that. You yeah, have that to understand sense. that was the world I was brought up in. That was I'm, normal for me, and I couldn't understand why people had steering wheels on the other side of the car. Mm. I, was, I couldn't understand. I thought, why are they sitting on the wrong side of the car? <laughs> you know? Like they try, they use it on the other side. Because you have to understand that was the environment um, I was brought up. Also, in Mississippi, they're direct. They're strong characters, the South. Mm, true. And I love that about them. And they're, they're out there, you know? Everything in England, and it's changing a bit more. Now, London is like a different country, so we have to talk about London very differently to the rest of England, um, is that... Um, very everything's subtext here everything is banter here or dry mm. humor being direct is seen as being very rude in you know british culture and even now i struggle with that because and what makes it worse is i've got an english accent so that kind of doesn't help me whereas if you've got like a foreign accent you can be as direct as you like because they can oh, compartmentalize chalk it. it up to oh you know maybe he doesn't know that kind of yeah exactly exactly so um that's the one thing and also people just didn't didn't feel it was ma much of an issue and I, I just was really shocked when i moved to uh london um it was a kind of similar thing as well i mean i'm a teacher right so i'll give you an example um well, I, I, on top of my creative stuff and, and other stuff that I do in my art, like my teaching is like my side thing. Mm -hmm. So, um, and I teach mainly 16 to 18 year olds. And I had to explain that blues music, had, what its relationship was uh, to Africa. And also had to, you know, talk about reggae and Ethiopia. This is something you would think that would be covered mm. in London schools, which is highly multicultural. Uh, no, probably not. Oh, not. yeah. Yeah, <laughs> probably not. Like, just like you said with the churches, you know, besides, you know, teaching about the gospel and about the ways of Jesus, there was also like an undertone of, you know, platform for civil rights and things like that. So only those teachers like you who want to go the extra step in educating people who might not necessarily know about their history actually do it, but it's not baked into the system. Exactly. And one thing that at least um, in Mississippi, at least they had their own self-education and they changed that you know, mm. um, so they didn't lose um, their kind of relationship with history, their relationship with culture, uh, you know, uh, so I think that's different. How many, how many, like, what else did you pick up from Mississippi? Like, obviously, the, the grits and the gumbo and, you know, uh, the accent for, you know, some time and your knowledge about, you know, Black history. Uh, what about music? How much influence, I mean, oh. we just talked about the blues, but how much influence would you say Mississippi had on your music career as compared to London? Oh, 100%. Like, um, I'm not, I'm 100% inspired by the blues. Um, I've changed genres in music over time, but if I'm singing a cappella or anything like that, my where I'm comfortable is blues. When I first started off doing music um, in, in my bands and everything, it was blues kind of cabaret, but it was blues based. You know, Bessie Smith, Coco Taylor, um, you're just amazing. Cool, cool. Taylor. I don't even know who that is, but I'll probably look it up. Oh after my gosh, you gotta check out Voodoo Woman. You know, so many just amazing uh, blues singers, and yeah, you're brought up on it. The blues, and that's one positive as well about Mississippi, and they're proud of that. You, you know, they are proud yep. of that. 
and everyone is proud of that and um, even the sign I've got a sign of me because uh, when I went back to visit where I live um, and it's you know got the home of blues music on the on the road sign you know mm. Mississippi and you're right in the heart of it so yeah a hundred percent because blues is about you know it's just soul it's about authenticity it's about struggle it's yep. you know it's not about how great your production is or you know bragging about I don't know how many women you've got on your arm and you know the lyrics when you really listen to them they're so simplistic but they're so almost profound in their simplicity because they really touch you and they're just raw aren't they and I just I absolutely love it yeah I've got quite a lot of I've got some friends who are into blues and um but blues isn't hugely like there's loads of English people who love blues but it's not as popular obviously like it is in the USA so to really with all the English band that Oh, we all the English bands that uh, borrowed from um, the Muddy Waters of this world and the James Browns of this world and all that. Like, I would imagine there's a underground scene for like jazz and blues in London. Yeah, we got the Ain't Nothing But the Blues Bar in London. Jazz is huge um, mm. here, um, and yeah, then it went into like blues rock um, and you know in the '70s and everything else. So yes, of course, people do love blues music here. But I'm talking as an independent DIY artist going to gigs and making money and trying Got to make a, um, a living out of your music career. It's, it's tough. And so I've got a friend and he only does blues music, um, mm. a guitarist. And he's done quite well. And the, fortunately, the blues followers are quite loyal if they do love blues here. But a lot of people aren't very good at paying uh, for gigs um, in England, I think they're a bit more generous in America in terms of musicians and performers, or much more willing to pay for music. Um, and I maybe it's because we've got so much variety. But like country music, yeah, of course, there's people here who love country music, but it's huge in the US. You know, it's got it. Let me ask you one question. I always ask musicians: Do you still believe in genres? Do you still think genres are a thing? Because you know, trying to classify it as blues music or this or that, like in 2020, it, it's almost it's so difficult to determine what a genre is. A lot of people bend genres. A lot of people are creating their own genres and listeners seem to care less and less about genres. So I don't know. What, what do you think about genres in the music industry? Do you think people are just freer, much a lot more free to create whatever without sticking to a particular theme? Or do you think as a professional musician, based on your circle, people still try to you know, carve a niche out for themselves in a specific genre? Um, I think in terms of genres, I think everyone has recycled an inspiration of sort. Everyone is recycling something that they've heard and making it into their own. And I guess that's part of art and trying to make it into something new. Mm. Everyone is blending all the genres together. So they're all becoming kind of hybrids. Um, so you usually have like a song and it will have like three influence, three influences from three different genres or something rather than just one. I think genres can be helpful in terms of like charts and stuff like that. I mean, look mm. at the term urban. Urban is so huge in Umbrella. What the hell is urban? <laughs> you know, Ur it's like... Urban uh, is not non-white. That's what it is. <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> so people of color, black, yeah, Latino. It's so people. huge. <laughs> so, and it's just, but I, so in some ways, genre can be good. But... In terms of independent uh, DIY artists, there's pros and cons. So as an independent artist, independent musician, you've got the freedom now to create music in your bedroom. You'd be a bedroom producer if you want. You get Logic, yep. you know, or, or Pro Tools. Make yep. your own music, put it out there, get a distributing, do online mastering, online mixing. If you don't do that yourself, we can co-produce. You've got the internet. 
you know, or if you're into like blues or jazz where you need to go into a studio and you don't want to use kind of recorded samples of brass, you can, you know, you can do that and you can do whatever genre you want. I do, I think in terms of independent artists, everyone's going to find a niche for themselves. So someone's always going to find something distinctive about them and go that that's what defines me, but that's more about branding. Um, and as long as it's authentic, I don't think that is a bad thing as long as it is authentic. So you, you can have an artist who, I don't know, uh, they might be passionate about a particular topic or they might wear a particular hat or something. That's their thing. Or they might, you know, walk or move in a certain way. But I don't think people care that much about uh, genres anymore, no, I think. But in terms of, um, I changed genre, and but I, problem with me, I changed genre too many times. And then that's when you encounter a lot of difficulties. And I spent like so much money and everything. And I went from blues, kind of cabaret and the cabaret scene and like, um, and the alternative scene in London, they really loved it. Whereas the blues scene said I wasn't quite blues enough because I used to have flowers on a piano and like a, a nine piece band. And then I went kind of electronic. Um, really? I, yeah. And the reason why is um, I also produce. So, mm. I, and I love producing, like, and being able to record at home on Logic and stuff. So you can't do that in a blues setup. You can do, you know, a blend, like maybe, I don't know, like blues, you know, like Funky House or something like that. But you can't do all your recordings. You can do half of it, but in that genre, you can. And then it just kind of, I don't think people really felt that. I also, I forgot to mention, I, my first instrument was a flute, which was classical as well. Mm. Um, uh, so, you know, I can do lots of different genres, but I, I want to go back to, I, I think, um, more towards my roots, really, because you, you always, it's funny, isn't it? You can drift really, 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 really far away from your root, but it's always there and you're always drawn back to it somehow. Why is yep. that? I, I don't know. I think, uh, you know, a lot of Nigerian, things. Nigerian, aren't you? I'm Nigerian. Yeah, correct. Yeah, and you live in Colorado. So uh, when did you move to Colorado? Oh, not that long ago, last year. Do you like it? Yeah, I mean, I used to live in D.C. Um, so the East Coast here in the U.S. is more... Colorado has more of a suburb feel. So it's more... I always joke that, you know, when I moved here, I felt my life expectancy go up. But that's mm -hmm. just me, right? It's, it's, you know, it doesn't have, like, the big city, like, D.C. or New York or Chicago feel. It's more, like, laid back. A lot of people mm -hmm. here, like, you know, uh, go, like, s skating or skiing or whatever, you know, things like that. So it's a more laid back state, So um, which is good for me because I, I, I like peace and quiet, you know. But that's just me personally. Um, but let, let's touch a little bit on race. So I want to ask you a question. So you were on this side of the pond in the U.S. and you talked about your first few days or your first few weeks being a little difficult, you know, experiencing those um, teasing mm -hmm. from the kids and, you know, you know, from your neighbor and, and that boy that you played baseball with. When you got back to the U.K., um, given that, you know, you said when you were in Mississippi, uh, you know, someone who just saw you from a distance will say, oh, no, she's not white. When you got back to the U.K., did you... Did the society make you feel like an outsider all over again, just like those first few weeks in Mississippi, because maybe you had an accent or you had this oh, ideologies yeah, that were not oh. common in the society? Did you feel like you were going through the whole thing again? I still feel like that today, which is why I live in London, because it's Really? Even in London? London is pretty diverse, right? That's why I live in London, because 
I even felt like that in my last area. I've just moved recently to a place called Shoreditch. It's um, right in the centre, and it's definitely a lot more diverse than where I was living. And where I was living, everywhere in London's got, you know, a mix of races and stuff. But where I was living before, I mean, it was just too white, you know, and it just felt little things like if I played Afrobeats in my garden, like a neighbour would get really angry at me. Wait, 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 wait. Sorry to cut you short. Did you just say Afrobeat? Yeah. Really? So That's like, impressive. I, it, wasn't even on, it, wasn't, it wasn't even loud, right? And I was just like playing it in my garden and this man starts swearing saying turn it effing off turn it effing off and then a couple hours later oh they had their little tea party with the classical music so i was just like i need to i need to i've got a seriously move because the whole point of london is diversity yeah (laughs) now i live somewhere which is representative of definitely and it's where i work as well so it's representative of me and i love it here because it's like a massive mixing pot and that's how it should be so but yeah, I still struggle with some aspects of the culture to this day. But besides the, and you know, feel free to, to you know... Um, I'm very blunt. Yeah. I'm very direct. I'm Beside, very forthright. Okay, okay. Your Mississippi, side, your Mississippi side will probably come in handy for this next question. Besides like, um, you know, those utterances like from your neighbors or anything like London at one point, probably, you know, especially like I'll imagine like early 70s, mid 80s, and maybe even up to the 90s, had a lot of like racially motivated like crimes and hate crimes. And I can imagine maybe some of those to go on, like have you been victim to any like physical confrontation or anything based on your background? I'm okay. So I basically look like an aesthetically white woman. Mm-hmm. So, and there's two sides to this. So my um, experiences and type of aggression that I will experience is going to be totally different to someone who's like visibly black or visibly African. True. So um, they, so for instance, the benefit of looking the way I do means I get to maneuver in circles, but the, the, the bad thing is I get complete identity erasure. Okay, so you don't fit in and you're not accepted by anyone because you're kind of stuck in stuck in this weird middle and it, and when as soon as you start associating yourself with africa this is when the problem starts yep. from both sides and this is what happens and this is why egyptians are not open about being pan african but i want to change that so That's when you a, start associ- sorry okay, go, on. go on no go on when you start associating yourself with africa you're then telling uh, the white community no you know, then that's when you're like, go back to Africa. Oh, you mm. dirty Arab. Oh, you know, oh, I don't want to go to Egypt because it's full of terrorists. You know, yeah, I've been told that. And I, I've been told that looking the way I do. You have to understand sounding the way I do. I've got like quite a well-spoken accent. Imagine though, if you visibly, you know, don't, you know, visibly look African and you don't have that. You know, it's, we live in a very classist society in London. It's hugely, hugely classist, more than anything else. Mm. Um, and, yeah, I have had that. But the problem when you start saying you're Pan-African is you can also piss a lot of people off, and you piss a lot of people off on all sides. Egyptians think you're mad and crazy because they're brainwashed by Pan-Arabism, and they think... Oh, but when you're Egyptian, we don't have to choose. We're African Arabs. We're, we're this and that. You know, we're just Egyptians. They think you're insane. The black community says, oh, you're trying to take away our black nationalism and take away our black figures. And when you point out facts, 
about crime in, you know, and Krumah basically being married to an Egyptian, Malcolm X being funded by Egypt, mm. and also stating that... Was, was Malcolm funded by Egypt, though? I know he visited Egypt, and I know he met with um, Nasser at the United Nations. But yeah, was, was he, he thought, officially funded by Egypt? Not, like, all around, but for that trip. For that uh, trip in Egypt, they definitely helped to fund some of his money, uh, to help fund some of his trip, I think. And then they helped to also give him a place to teach as well. Yeah. Um, and then he said that, um, which was actually a massive life-changing kind of point for me, is, you know, when Malcolm said that an Egyptian is just much an African as, as someone from Congo. Yeah, uh, Malcolm, Malcolm kind of had that, you know, he towards the end of his life, you know, when he went to Mecca and, you know, went to Egypt and all these places and was interacting with all these Muslims because he was used to, like, the nation, right? And everyone who was Muslim was black. But when he was interacting with, like, Arab Muslims, then he started to see that, oh, you know, we're still united under uh, the body of Islam, but not everyone kind of looks the same. Um, but let's talk a little bit about Pan-Africanism. It's funny you say that, you know, um, it's the way Africa is kind of structured. And I relate with the fact, you know, you saying you're, you identify with Pan-Africanism and, you know, you're getting, like, pushbacks from both sides. Like, even in the corporate world, like, when companies are, you know, classifying divisions as, like, you know, Middle East and North Africa is a division, then rest of Africa is another division, then, you know, Southeast Asia and Australia is a division, then maybe the U.S. is a division and, and, and Europe is another division. Like, a lot of people don't see or don't act like North Africa is part of Africa. I know maybe we can chalk this up to, like, the Berlin Conference of how the continent was divided and everything, but I don't but that's know. that's the North African's fault, and I see mm. all sides. And I, I think, yeah, however, um, yeah, there's some maps if you go onto Twitter where they've just taken out North Africa and saying, this is the new Africa. Really? <laughs> yeah, they've actually just completely taken away all of North Africa. Because they're just, you have to understand, if you imagine children in, like, a playground, mm. North Africans are, like, the distant related, I don't know, cousins that you really dislike and who cause you a lot of problems because they're just so arrogant or something like that. And it's obviously with, you know, Gaddafi and other things that you, you obviously can't, when I say North Africans, we can't lump everyone. But the reason why... Was it, wasn't Gaddafi Pan-African in a sense? In a oh, sense? he was, yeah, he was 100% Pan-African. Mm. He, he used to have the best T-shirts. He used to have, you know, all African um, leaders on his T-shirts and all black leaders on his T-shirts. It's fantastic. Yeah, so, and um, when, it's, when you start researching Pan-Africanism, Mm -hmm. and start researching, you know, you know, Ghana and Kwame and all of this, you start to go, oh, hang on, Egypt interlays with that. Hang on, Egypt was, you know, at the beginning when they tried to do an organization to bring Africa together and the unity. And then you start to go, oh, and Egypt overlaps that. I had no idea in the past. I was taught and made to believe Egypt was and is not part of the Pan-African movement by all sides. Now, people hate Egypt. Retard by who? By all sides of the community. Mm. Mm. And you have to find out the facts yourself. Now, people are angry at Egyptians, and I understand why. They're angry at Egyptians because they're like, look, Egypt is our country. You know, Egypt is a black country. Um, it's been whitewashed by the colonialists for a start. Then Arabs come over. You've adopted Arab culture. That's completely taken over. And you don't give credit to um, black, you know, um, Egyptian 
Um, whereas Egyptians don't really have this whole, they're, they're based more, first and well, they are based primarily on religion and class, and then comes your ethnicity. Like mm. Mustafa Hefni, that Nubian Egyptian, he's still fighting to not be classified as white in the USA. Mm. You believe it? You have to watch that video if you haven't. I'll send you the link. Yeah, um, most, most definitely, I'll take a look at it. But it, you know, now that you now that you talk about it, because when a lot of people, you know, think about Egypt, we just think about maybe the last hundred years or something. You know, so maybe a lot of people see Egyptians as Arab in that way. But if you look back the last thousand years, even going back to like biblical eras, like Egypt being like the cradle of civilization pretty much where all the, most of the technology and all the best schools were like, I don't consider that Egypt of the ancient pharaohs Arab in a way, you know? So mm -hmm. what, you know, I never well, thought about it that way to you just mention what does it. As, well, the thing is, Basically, the black community, when I say black, we're talking about African community, but what the re in parts of Africa in the south, you know, south of the desert, basically the reason why they get annoyed is because it's like when you play football, that's the only time you want to be African when it suits you. Mm. And I totally understand that, though. I understand that frustration. And they do not stand, um, you know, with their brother, their African brothers and sisters in times of need. Um, and Does they have something to do with the way... With gold, and they side more and focus more on Arab relations. Relations. You know, Egypt is actually not officially, you know, Middle East, even though it's called that all the time. There was DNA done of modern Egyptians, and very little of the DNA is even Arabs. Arabs have very different DNA. Yeah, the yeah like I said. don't I, define I, as Arabs. The Nubians don't define as Arabs. And a lot of people will say, you're not part of African history because you're, you're, you're the invader. You're the Arab. You're the invaders. Or, I don't know, you come from here. You're just a, a byproduct of, of white people. So if you start getting deep into Pan-Africanism, some strands of it, most of it is all about unity, but there are some strands that says you've got no melanin, you can't be part of it. But most Pan-Africanists don't believe that. Um, and so there's like a, a big, I can understand why though, Egyptian history for mm. most of the years has been depicted as white when it's not. Yeah. And, um, you know, just playing devil's advocate, do you think the way the Pan-African movement was started has something to do with it? I mean, most of its early players, you know, Sankara, Nkrumah, Mandela, all those guys were mostly like from Middle Africa or Southern Africa, mm -hmm. like south of the Sahara. And even though they reached out to countries like Egypt and even countries outside the continent for help once in a while, was mostly a mainland Middle African movement because mm -hmm. a lot of those people were fighting for the independence of their respective countries. And they were all banded together against a common enemy most of the time, which was, you know... But um, yeah. even though, obviously, what Nasser did in terms of Nile and everything towards Nubians, you know, is awful because he was so blindsided and so focused on fighting colonialism mm. and that he wanted to be independent. And regardless of the bad things he did, he was part of that movement as well. And it was actually Nasser who recommended, you know, Nkuma's wife, you know, Fatia, you know, and yeah. um, Malcolm had a child and actually named it after NASA. So I'm not a, a big NASA fanatic. I recognize the, the damage he did and the, and the hell he made for Newlands, but I also recognize the positives he did as well. Um, and so when you look at that, he'll, he, but the problem with him is he was Pan-African, but he was Pan-Arabist, and then he created he the whole Arab League. So you can't be both. You've got to yeah. choose a side, and this is the issue I've got. And people are far more loyal Egyptians are far more loyal to Arab 
and um, than they are to Africa. That's the issue I have. I have. Yeah, I mean, I totally agree. And, you know, just for context, we're talking about, in case anyone's listening, we're talking about Gamal Nasser. I think it was the former president. Mm-hmm. Was it president or prime minister of Egypt? Yeah. Uh, they had this whole thing with Syria where they wanted to create the United African, United Arab Republic, I think. Okay. Yeah, can I just tell your listeners something? Because I just want to make this really, really clear. You know the Arab League and um, that is has been created. You know how it's called, like uh, Arab Republic of Egypt. You know the European Union. Okay, it's a political affiliation, like like the EU. It doesn't mean that you're Arab, which some people seem to think. There's also complexities as well because people in Egypt associate being Arab with being Muslim. Mm. Can you see how it's all kind of a bit complex? If you've got someone who's really proud of being Muslim, they're going to obviously be inspired by Arab culture. Then they're going to hold on to that. So first of all, I think to be an ally in Pan-Africanism as an Egyptian, first of all, you've got to get rid of your Arab identity, first and foremost. You've got to Mm. go through a deep brainwashing. Secondly, you've got to make a pledge that you are always going to be loyal to Africa first. And you are not going to be loyal to the Gulf just because there's maybe cultural similarities um, mm. in the Middle East. That would um, be a tough nut to crack. Because <laughs> the two regions... I did it. How did I do it? Yeah, yeah. One person, like, I didn't we're, grow we're up there. about I didn't a whole society. You didn't grow up there, but even if you did grow up there, you're one person who came to the realization, did your yeah. research and say, you know, I, I'm African first, you know, but yeah. to, to change the mindset of a whole, you know, region or society. Yeah, good luck, Yeah, but especially when they're vested interests, you know, from the French, besides even, you know, from from the Arabs, like from the French and like from from other regions in 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 North Africa. But that that's neither here nor there. Um but yeah, well what kind what kind of things have you done like in promoting this um Pan Africanism? Uh have you like published anything? Have you like held events? Have you or this is more like you know, when you come in personal contacts with like other Egyptians or other North Africans, you try to, you know, make them see your point of view and, you know, get them to start thinking about uh, Pan-Africanism as against, you know, Pan-Africanism. Yeah, so if I come in contact with other Egyptians, I I do try, but I try to go in gradually because it's mm. going to be a language that just they won't understand because um, if you go in there kind of guns blazing, you're like, what? What are you talking about? A lot of them become a bit, <laughs> right. a bit, a bit weird, to be fair. Um, now, in terms of the work I've done, um, I'll, I'll speak to you. So first of all, I think being Pan-African, separate to politics, means that you empower, yeah, and you, or you should empower and use your place of privilege. And I think as a Pan-Africanist, if you're pale or if you're aesthetically white, and you're African, you should use that privilege to try not to be any savior, no white savior thing, but to try and um, support the fights that you know your dark African brothers have, and but they may not be able to access spaces that you Is can. Due to on your the continent own. or outside the continent or both? Both, mm. both. I mean, I, I think you know, like there's just going to be spaces that, for instance, I might be able to access that others can't, and the, and it works the other way around as well sometimes. Um, 
So for instance, I did my video, my documentary, my grad documentary, so BAFTA, that was like the best thing that happened to me in my life because I was mm. a caregiver. And so for me, I've had to work really, really hard to kind of go being brought up and cared. You know, it's been a long journey of education, lots of things, because I kind of, you know, dropped out of school at like 14. I had no GCSEs. So, and, that, and then I did like a, um, a master's and then I did like a PG cert, a postgraduate certificate at Cambridge University. So I had to work really, really hard. But so for instance, I was given this opportunity with BAFTA, which was really, really great. And I decided to do my documentary about, you know, kind of heterosexual um black british men mental health suicide sexual abuse mm. now you when you're given um, if you say to someone give them an amazing opportunity yeah and what do they use that opportunity for is it for themselves or is it for a cause and that's usually mm. where you know your passion lies because i mm. could have just said because that made me quite I've been selfish with it mm. Yeah, I got. To, I'm not saying I, I'm, I want any thanks or anything like that. And the contributors were, were great, you know, uh, and fantastic, but um, and very, very brave. But I got turned down a lot of jobs in the media industry and broadcasting kind of industry. Oh wow! And I because of that have, documentary. Yeah, and also wow. because when I started tweeting about Pan Africanism. So I ended up having to delete loads of my Pan-African tweets. People don't want to hear about it. Even a manager, I had to, a couple of weeks, well, actually, I had a new manager for a couple of weeks. Where's the manager from? Um, England, but we just, I, uh, yeah, but just stopped because I was then tweeting about Pan-Africanism again. And even Mm. some people didn't want to be associated with me. And um, and the, the... they just don't want to. They don't want to hear that. And for instance, I'm still. I mean, it's crazy. Still, after over a year of trying, you know, because I used to run a London uh, London radio station and obviously got radio experience and I do my podcast and everything. So it's not that I don't have my my credentials, but I'm been trying to get a show about Africans yeah. come on the show to talk about mental health. Anything, it doesn't have to be suicide, but anything related to maybe feeling suicidal. They don't have to talk about sexual abuse or emotional abuse, but if they want to, to come onto the show and talk about it. And I've been turned down consistently, and not just by white stations. We're talking about specific black stations. Want it. And then they'll say, oh, yeah, maybe we do, um, you know, because there's a, a Lambeth collective well-being. And I think it's like 16 times, uh, mental health supposed to be 16 times more in, you know, that men. And so that's why, um, and you think in 2020, why is that happening? And why in London as well? That's quite worrying. Yeah, I mean, I can see that. Obviously, you know, um, when you pick up a cause like you have, you know, everyone who picked up causes in the past, everyone from, you know, Nkrumah to, you know, um, Malcolm and everyone, they face some opposition. And that's the first place they hit you, like economically, right, with your job or anything. So that's uh-huh. like, but, you know, if you hadn't, you know, kept at it, like, you know, this black guy from Colorado would not have reached out to you and say, oh, you know, let, let's talk. Oh, so, thank you're, you. You're having some effect. So that's just as a way of encouragement. And obviously. Um, thank you. I really appreciate that. Yeah, because I deleted all my past tweets and then I tried to be quiet. Obviously, with this awful thing, uh, with this recent murder, I was like, no way am I staying quiet. So that's why I decided to part ways with this manager that I'd had for a couple of weeks. I was like, I'm not staying quiet. And so I'm going back to my old pan African tweeting ways. But yeah, I that's conviction. Experience. That's conviction right there. I was like, no way, Jose. Like, I don't, <laughs> you, I don't even want you to manage me if, if that's your view anyway. Like, no. Um, and 
I have experienced twice so a very negative response um, black women about me being Pan African. But other than that, I've had a, I've had a positive response from mm. the kind of uh, black community. Wait, why black women specifically? What was the did they um, did they come at it like you don't you don't understand the struggle, or yes, they come at like, it like you're not supposed to be in the struggle? Yeah, like who are you? You're mm. you're basically white. Like wh what are you talking about? You're, you're trying to take our figures, and you know Pan Africanism is apparently anti um, darker women, and it's like that's actually not true. You've even got you know, black men, Pan-Africanists who actually point out some amazing women. And, you know, and then when you start talking about the facts and stuff, it, it then becomes a colorism debate. And also they present, some, exactly. some of them, people can resent you. You have to understand, if yeah. you start talking about Africa and they're visibly African, right, but they're mm -hmm. disconnected from their culture or their, because, you know, racism and stuff, you, a lot of people cope with it in different ways. And kind of assimilate into UK or USA. And then you've got someone who aesthetically appears white, who's, of course, are then Egyptian, North African. A lot of people think, oh, stupid Arab. And then who's going on about Pan-Africanism. A, it can be quite a shock. Mm. And B, it can be quite like, who are you? She knows more than me. Like, what's going on there? But only ever from ignorant people. The rest be nothing but supportive. And if they've got questions, like, you're not trying to get a scholarship. No, I, I, would, I, wouldn't say, I wouldn't say ignorant. Like, you can't fault people who have trust issues, obviously, based on you know but what i know about black people is you know if you if you come from a place of um if you have like integrity about your cause and you're genuine about your approach to your cause then you know it's easy for black people to let you in you know but at you first there'll definitely be like resistance in the first you know few interactions with a new group of black people that that's that's just the way it is and you know again you know it's a generational thing it's been built over different generations that you know for the black community to just trust an outsider in quotes even though we're, we're banded by the continent but you know just aesthetically it doesn't seem that way you know there'll be that initial resistance so it's, it's just left you know for, for you no, to I totally understand that, but I'm talking about like I actually had to move house recently because my flatmate actually disliked me that much, and she had a Sankara tattoo on her arm, and I thought I could discuss Pan Africanism, and she just despised me from that moment on. So did you did you did you approach it from a place of learning, or did you approach it from? And you know, I I don't know your flatmate, and I'm not saying you know negating your experience, but you know just to kind of play devil's advocate. Yeah, we were just talking. We we're just talking, yeah. and um, she was, you know, in conversation. And I just said, you know, I was Pan African, and then started to, you know, uh, talk about uh, leaders, uh, you know, in in the movement. Um, and there were just little things. Um, it's like, um, you know, little comments like, oh, that's endearing. You know, little things like that. That sounds like, so British. <laughs> um, like, you're not really African, are you? You know, but, you know, it's nothing compared to... I have nothing to complain about. I, every single time I think about that, I think about, you know, what about these um, amazing, basically, black men and women, you know, getting killed every single day or arrested. There's an amazing book by Albert Woodfox. I really would like to just push this out to your listeners. Um, and he was part of the Angola Three, and he was in solitary mm. confinement for at least 44 years, okay? Mm. And he wrote a book called Solitary, so they didn't destroy him. And he's out now. And it, he was in uh, Louisiana. And he was in a prison that was built on a past slave plantation. 
where the prison owners uh, basically were part of that. Their family it was family owned. Wow. You, honestly, you've got to read this book. Uh, and what's what's the book called? Uh, so it's by Albert Woodfox, okay. and his book's called Solitary. It's like four Solitary. pounds in all. And it, one thing, the reason why I recommend it to your listeners is because it just touches on a lot of kind of old stuff that happened in the South, but it also touches upon the Black Panthers, how black, being a Black Panther really uplifted him and kept him mentally strong, uh, which is really great. Um, and uh, also um, just the kind of horrific history of the prison. But can you imagine this whole isolation thing? Can mm-hmm. you imagine being in a six by nine cell in solitary confinement for being accused of doing a murder you did not commit? For 40 years. 40, over 44, about 44 years. Mm. Yeah, and he did not let them break him. They did, he did not let them break his spirit. And you can watch his videos online. Uh, so definitely read his book. And there were the Angola Three. There's also Herman Wallace. Um, uh, he was Black Panther as well. And, but he only had three days. He came out and died. So that's a separate thing. But I just, it's something I'm very passionate about. And I would like everyone to support his book um, and, you know, to, to give him money for his art, you know, so... Got it, got it. You know, we can definitely have a link to that, like, in the description, so you can just click on it and and, and go. Um, The way you select or or the way you stumble, you know, it it really authenticates, you know, how genuine your intentions are because the things you fight for, besides the Pan-Africanism movement, uh, also with your documentary talking about Black men uh, and molestation, which isn't really talked about a lot of times. Apart from those two, you're also, like, anti-feminist in a way which is strange how do you how do you get to that realization of being anti-feminist when you're a woman yourself like I can imagine that kind of ostracize you from the female community I guess (laughs) yeah it does it does ostracize me um I used to be um when I was at uni like all students uh you know you go and join the club societies don't you and uh I, I joined I joined it and I became really into the feminist society and then we did the student elections and I rose up. What, what type of things does a student feminist society do? I'm curious. <laughs> In the UK, well, what kind of activities do you guys do? You basically discuss topics um, and you also invite guests and you basically do really, uh, you do Q&As and pummel them with really difficult questions. Okay, and so you a typical university organization, okay. <laughs> um, you know, typical student stuff. Okay. Um, and so you had to be elected, and I did. I was elected to be, I think, like I don't know, the the, uh, the gender equality diversity officer. And then they had, uh, which used to be called women's officer. And then I was also elected to be president and head of the feminist society. I had red hair and Doc, floral Doc Martens, and I was like totally immersed mm-hmm. in, in the subculture. Mm-hmm. And um, and then I went to the feminist library. Um, in London, which is fantastic. And there's some great feminist works out there. But I started to notice that feminism is so huge. Mm-hmm. It's so many strands to it. You can't lump all feminism together. So obviously white feminism was very different to feminism from African communities. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, bell hooks is very different, um, you know, to other writers. And I think what I noticed, though, was across most of the whole, just all of the different strands, most of them stayed silent about any type of abuse that had happened in black or African men. 
or and Caribbean. I include Caribbeans as African, even though they're Caribbean. So any African men, and we're talking even Egyptians, regardless of skin color, it's all African men. And then when you bring it up in person, mm-hmm. it's also ignored again. Did you come to this realization while being an elected official of a feminist organization? Yeah, they, were, they invited this beauty pageant lady down. And she's basically (laughs) was really cruel to her and just was so intense, questioning and attacking her about why she removes hair. And so I was like, nah, I'm not, this is not my feminism. This is not my feminism. (laughs) This is so privileged. You know, it was like the type of thing where they were fighting for cleaners' rights. And you Mm -hmm. know what they did to fight for cleaners' rights? They graffitied the toilets in all of the library and all of the universities. And guess who had to clean that up? The cleaners had to clean up a fight for cleaners' rights. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> like champagne socialist. Oh, yeah, it sounds like... Wait, was that Cambridge? Was that Cambridge? No, that was actually Goldsmiths, where I did my undergrad um, and my MA, uh, Goldsmiths University of London. Well, University Cambridge, of London. No, you wouldn't have uh, that. Cambridge, I think... Uh, yeah, that, that sounds like... That's how, what they call the... Is University of London part of the... What's, yeah, so the, you know, what's the UK equivalent of Ivy League? I forgot. Oh, it yeah, starts so with that a would H. Be, that would be like Harvard. So you guys have Harvard, don't you, and Yale? And yeah. Yale. So we would have Cambridge and obviously Oxford are the most renowned and kind of highly. We also have Durham University, which is quite high. In terms of London University, probably UCL is really good um, and King's College for medical stuff. Goldsmiths is awesome. Goldsmiths is though, you have to think, Goldsmiths doesn't have any heavy hard sciences. It only has psychology, sociology, and the arts. So it would be classed in America as a liberal arts college. Um, So University of London, they have different colleges. Whereas Cambridge and Oxford, like Cambridge is massive and everything they own and the buildings are phenomenal. I mean, that really, um, when you go and have something to eat in the the college kind of dining hall, it's like being at a Harry Potter scene. Oh, really? It's like Hogwarts. Yeah, yeah, absolutely great. Um, And that now they're getting a lot more students, you know, from like, backgrounds that aren't just like more white uh really really good so got it got it so wait back back to this your anti-feminism thing so obviously you you saw that you know um instances of you know men being molested and you know oppressed in a way so you chose to abandon the cause of feminism and like be on this for lack of a better word like be more uh sympathetic towards the cause of men who experience who have those experiences I, you want to know how I got there. So two two things. I've got a friend that I've known for over 20 years now. Okay. Um, and he's done some kind of interviews with me. Um, not interviewing me. I've done some interviews with him. So on video. And I'm going to repost them. I repost them out occasionally, retweet them. Um, and he um, has a mother from Barbados and his father was white Irish. And he basically is very open and one of the few people I know, and that's I think why we're such good friends, um, about being, you know, sexually abused by his father from a young age. Um, mm. And I think when it a woman um, sexually abusing um, a, a boy or a male, be like, yeah, yeah, I'm hot, you know, she wanted it, like, like all that. It's almost become normalised for older women to. It's, it's okay for an older woman to go and go with a teenager when it's sexual abuse. It's like, oh yeah, it's okay. But when it's a male abusing you of penetrative issues and homophobia which is already within african culture anyway mm. it's it then makes adds other complexities and um brings other things up 
and so yeah he was abused um and then he developed mental health from the flashbacks from that and he's really open about it and so that's one part of it but also um i've i've been abused many many times in my life um, from a child all the way up you know i've had arson attacks i've been sexually abused as a kid i've been physically abused um you, you know I've, I've been in you know psychological abuse all that stuff and I would say pretty much all of my abusers, obviously men, and all of them have been abused. Usually mm, by people, hard people. Mm. Yeah. And then my father, he he went into prison, my brother's been in prison, my sister's been in prison, my mum hasn't, and I haven't. Uh, but my father uh, went into prison uh, for a very bad crime. And um, he was in Parkhurst in the 80s when it was like high security prison in Isle of Wight. And he had 16 aunties and four uncles. And it was only when he started to get uh, dementia um, and certain boundaries, he couldn't really judge them properly. Then I started to find out, Mm. you know, he grew up in a knife gang and used to slit people's faces and be on the streets of Alexandria. But he'd also been abused. But he would hate me to him this year, but I know he won't listen. He's missing anyway. He's been missing for two and a half months in Egypt, and he's not a British citizen, so it's been... Wait, really wait, wait. Your, your dad has been missing for two months? Two and a half months he's been missing. I'm the only child he has contact with. I was, like, doing caring for him. He flew out um, mid-March. I told him not to. Everyone has a pattern. He hasn't picked up the phone, but he's, he's lived in London for 44 years. He goes back to Egypt every year, and he's not a British citizen. So basically, the London police and the British embassy in Cairo are like, well, we can't really, what can we do? He's not a British citizen. Have you and tried the- to go to, uh, has any of your family been in touch with the police in Cairo? It's not, it doesn't kind of like uh, work like that. So they kind of have their own way, their own organization. So I've been in contact with the Egyptian consulate in London, and they've just completely ignored me, completely mm. and utterly ignored me. So the actual, the British embassy is actually sending something to the foreign well in Cairo. I had someone go to my father's flat um, and they said they don't even know of anyone by his name. It's been really frustrating and really difficult. The human right um, in Egypt, as we all know, isn't exactly <laughs> top level. I mean, that man, he did um, post-production for a music video and he died after two years in prison with, and he had no lawyer. You know, Al Jazeera journalists always go missing. Um, and it's he never got his connecting flight in Cairo which is really really weird now at the beginning I was getting really emotional about it and I even did like a Twitter appeal but now I've had to for my own sanity I've had to completely compartmentalize it and detach emotionally not because I don't care I've got the medication ready from his doctors next to Kim but I can't do anything and it made me start to go if my father is an immigrant even though he's I always saw him as a London Egyptian obviously he sounds Egyptian he's got a heavy accent and culturally but I was just like I'm an immigrant too so I started to have all these things and I was angry and frustrated and so I just want to know I've reached a point I just want to know is he dead or is he alive now um I'm very disappointed um I'm sorry to hear that well it's it's not knowing is actually the worst you know if he's passed away then I just want to make sure he's you know, buried as, you know, according to his religion and his religion, you know, is Islam. What, what, was it, what was the purpose of him going to Egypt? He just wanted to basically go to his flat to get, he goes there like for like two weeks every year, just to, it's a very mm. simple flat, nothing special, mm. but it's, it's where it's, he got it from his parents. So it's like, um, 
he wants to obviously try, you know, his childhood foods, go to his area and, you know, just to touch base. It's something I can see that. Um, you know, obviously he's a Londoner, but he's still, you know, Egyptian, you know, and even his views. And, and it, every time I saw him, especially when I was young, people used to always think like I was his, I don't know, some some young Eastern European women he'd picked up because he didn't sound like me. I don't look like him. <laughs> so we constantly had that. People thought I was like some escort. I'm like, no, he's my father. And they'll be like, yeah, yeah, right. I mean, but your mom is Swedish, so. <laughs> uh, she's blonde and blue eyes. And she's obviously white. So, and I took a lot of genes from her. But, you know, it's, and then I've got, my brother looks very stereotypical, kind of North African and looks so totally different uh to me to, i remember when we were in the hospital the people thought he was my boyfriend i was like no that's my brother <laughs> <You know? laughs> but yeah it's tough it's tough but um fortunately um our, twitter is proof twitter work i emailed the british embassy in cairo and they said they couldn't help me and i said but i'm a british citizen um and then when I complained about it on Twitter and to the MPs, they got hold of that. They DM'd me, and now I've got the British Embassy helping me as best they can, which is very limited for someone who isn't a British citizen British but has citizen. lived in this country for 44 years. And he has, like, indefinitely to remain, which is the American of, like, a permanent resident. Mm. Um, and, yeah, so no contact. Phone has been off just completely disappeared. Never got his connecting flight, very odd. He loves the, Alexandria's like a coastal town. So, you know, he loves this, this and he's old. He's very ill, he's got dementia, diabetes. You know, he's an old man, he takes a wheelchair thing when he's there. So it's uh, just weird, very, very odd. But I guess what will be, will be. You have to leave it in God's hands, I think I've reached the point of. Uh, but hopefully they find him soon. And, you know, I'm sorry for, you know, in addition to all the things that are going on in the world with the pandemic that you're experiencing such, or you're having to go through such uh, an issue right now? No, that's okay. There, there was an, an, another kind of loss I had to go through too, but it was good because in a way, doing all of this during an isolation pandemic, I think it's made me stronger. I think it's, made, you know, so, but thank you. That's kind of, yeah. Yeah, let, let's uh, touch a little bit on the bright side. Maybe uh, we, could, <laughs> we could talk a little bit about what you want to do with music uh, or your podcast or your radio show, say, in the coming months or in the coming years. Um, obviously, you have a podcast, Xara uh, Show. What do you usually talk about? I, I'm actually going to listen to the episode with Zubi because I love Zubi. I think it was on Joe Rogan like a couple of months ago. Um, yeah, so I, um, with Zubi, uh, that was a really interesting and challenging interview because he's got... He's very, very passionate about his opinions, and uh, but it was funny, and he he was a really great guest, very polite, and I know a lot of people really dislike him, uh, especially a lot of the black community really, really dislike him. They find that um, you know, and I, I can, so he's divisive, uh, but mm, he was a very yes. polite guest, and he's worked really hard. Um, he started out, you know, as a rapper and stuff, and yeah, listen to that. So what I usually do is I get them to do a takeover. I want to do. A different podcast which is talk based with a bit of music but I want that to be on a radio station and as you know I want that to be about mental health suicide and heavy topics for African men but no one wants to do that so that's why I'm waiting on that so I'm keeping the music one going so it's a music based podcast and basically independent DIY rappers and singers within kind of urban genre but primarily I would say 
related to rapping. Doesn't matter what type of rapping, it's matter if it's rhyme or. Oh, so that means I have you know. no chance of becoming a guest. What if I speak like 16 bars for you right now? Can I have? <laughs> Can I audition to yeah. be a guest? I want to interview better than the rest. I actually want to You know, you cannot test, you know. Yeah. Maybe there I should just go. set up another podcast. <laughs> 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 there. Yeah. Man, I really appreciate you being on my podcast. Obviously, we've, you know, covered a lot uh, of things during this episode. And I look forward to talking to you again in the future. You have this very interesting quote and on one of your pictures on Instagram that says, judge me not by the paleness of my skin, but by the blinding kaleidoscope of my soul. I think that kind of summarizes like the kind of woman you are. And I appreciate you because a lot of us want to see change in the world, but not a lot of us are courageous enough to actually go out there and make the change no matter how small. I mean, I try to do what I can with platforms uh, like my podcast and, you know, with people I interact with, but you seem to be doing it on a much, 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 much uh larger skill and you seem to be more deliberate in your efforts and i just want to thank you because you know i draw inspiration from people like you oh thank you so much that really really means a lot there was i get a few people that dm me privately um that and and that's kind of saying you know that for instance i've managed to i don't know how but i don't know encourage them to feel better about themselves um and that's not my motivation but it's great when it happens my motivation is for uh, justice and you, you know it, it's just um fact is uk is anti-african and africans should feel proud and you know things have to change and i i would all i would love is you know some people say i'm idealistic but i want african unity even if we can't get that to please empower african shops african and caribbean businesses mm. people in the workplace um, that's where it all boils down to right like yeah what do you think about the happened. economic fight like a lot of people yes we need like you know uh, like if we can empower ourselves economically, then we can truly be independent from all these yeah. systems that are prejudiced towards us, you know? Yeah, and I'm not dismissing any of the amazing entertainers, music artists and creatives out there, yeah? We're African or Caribbean, but that's always been the safe area and the acceptable area of anyone who's black, right? even in the most racist days where they couldn't even eat in the restaurants, but they were allowed to play, you know, because they would mm. love black music. What yeah. we want is, what will be a more of an achievement and what we need, we need, we, we, we need kind of African uh, people to be in all areas, tech, this, that, you know, banking, every single area that Facts. isn't just a music figure, you know? Facts, Facts. Uh, Because Facts. sometimes... And we, need to do it, and we need to do it our own way too. You know, yeah. Because most of these areas were developed by people who built the systems and you know we need to do it in our way to see how we can learn from it because yeah. you know, when it comes to education you know, we're just talking about egypt like a couple of thousand years ago like it's a birthplace like most of these things started on the continent but you know somewhere down the line we just seem to you know and of course there was slavery and all that but we need to get and, back know, to that so messed up you know mitochondrial eve you know with a melanin would have appeared in this whatever you know the western world sees as black you know and it's just like it's just absolutely insane but what, yes i think in terms of changing uh the the situation is to is to empower i think african businesses african restaurants shop at them buy products clothes and make make that your first choice rather than investing in companies who are just encouraging economically the suppression of Africans. I mean, that's my view. I don't know your view. 
It is. I, I agree. You know, it's 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 a multifaceted approach uh, in terms of the solution. But you know, focusing on the economic side will you know further the core the cause by a good number of years. You know, than appealing that. to people to change their minds, kind of thing. Sorry, you, what did you say? I say, are you Pan African? Um, I mean, to be honest, like I just recently like just recently like when i started my podcast say two years ago three years ago started thinking about things like race you know culture things like that so i'm like starting to like dig into all of that so mm. i don't have as much experience to make a stance and say hey i am you know i'm still trying to wrap my head around all this what i need what i know is that i would like for the world to be better especially mm -hmm. in terms of like race and cultural relations than it is mm -hmm. you know, right now. But I'm still like in those early phases of doing my research. You know, I was uh, maybe somewhat sheltered in a way uh, growing up, not did in its entirety. Did you grow up in the USA or did you grow up in Nigeria? No, I, I, grew, up, I grew up in Nigeria. Uh, my dad was in the military in Nigeria. So all I knew was kind of like Nigeria. I did have some, you know, insight into the world, but not until I moved to the U.S. three years ago did I get to see some things for myself and you know, decided yeah. to start taking those baby steps. Have you ever had experienced racism or prejudice when you moved oh, out there? Oh, yeah, sure. I don't think there's anyone that, even when I, before I even moved to the U.S., when I came to the U.S. for like, I visited for like two or three weeks, I experienced racism, how much more <laughs> living here, or pre prejudice, let me say prejudice. I haven't witnessed overt racism yeah. so anything physical or you know uh, arson mm -hmm. or things like that but you know of course like comments and behaviors of people and maybe people you you, you happen to work with and things like that but hey you know um it, it doesn't really matter uh the fact that people like you and me uh should focus on what the goal is and you know yeah, do our exactly. bit so maybe our children's children will, will come to a better world and our community will be stronger a hundred percent. Someone actually said to me recently, which I think is interesting, it just came uh, into my mind whilst we were talking about your experiences. They said, is dating political? And I thought that was really, really interesting. Because That's interesting. That sounds like a, another episode on in itself. <laughs> and they were saying, would you ever date someone who isn't African and all of this? And then you start looking at a lot of the Pan-African leaders and some of them actually did do that. And it's, it's quite interesting, but it's... Uh, and then some people say you can't be part of the Pan-African movement, obviously, if you do do that. And other people say you, you can. So yeah. And we have a version of that here in the U.S. as well in the Black community. Like once you're, like, married to someone who is not Black, then, like, automatically, like, your reputation gets discredited and you can't speak on Black causes, in a sense, even though we need every voice we, we, we have, you know. That's, that's besides the point, but, you know. Anyway, yeah, thank you for coming on. Do you want to, like, drop your social media handles? And I'll have, like, links to your podcast and everything. Uh, but if you want to drop your social media oh, handles. So. Wow, that, that went quick. Um, <laughs> yeah, that, that's good. Yeah, sure, you can find me on Twitter, xsara underscore. So it's x and then s-a-r-a -A, um, underscore. Um, and then my website is www.xara.co.uk. Um, my podcast is Xara's Extra. Some of the music can be explicit. So just to make you a listener's way, if they do um, check that out, the, some rap songs have uh, some swearing, but we have some good guests. And yeah, just, uh, yeah, just uh, find me online.
Perfect, perfect. And uh, of course, uh, as always, uh, Cultural Class Podcast on social media is Cultural Class Podcast everywhere, except Twitter. Twitter is Cultural Class Pod. Send us an email, culturalclasspodcast at gmail.com. Um, you have done quite a number of episodes with people in London. So hopefully when I touch base, we can like grab coffee or tea or, or maybe some grits if you open that restaurant, you know. Yeah, definitely. And if you ever visit London, you know, let me know and I'll show you around and introduce you to people and, you know, let me know if there's anyone also you want to speak to in my circle. And Most definitely. Uh, yeah, thank Most you definitely. so, so much for interviewing me and also, you know, you carry on doing you as well. Most definitely. Most definitely. All right, guys, till next time.